Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Arena Craft Podcast, a show dedicated exclusively on a weekly basis to nothing other than Magic the Gathering Arena. I am Arjuna, returning as one of your hosts, the other returning host, Covert Go Blue, the inimitable, the only one in Best of One. What's up, my brother? I am here, and we are probably going to talk about standard this week maybe something like that <laughs> a little bit a little, little constructed oh little, my gosh little yeah. format we took a we took a short diversion there last week to make arjuna happy hopefully keep a few of our limited playing listeners happy but this week i am stoked to dive into some new standard because we've got all of these new exciting cards to play with that people aren't used to playing with so like CGB, for example, after all of these bans, like there are all of these new cards in Zendikar Rising that we get to play with that we didn't get to before. Like they printed this new card called Yorian Sky Nomad. And um, this guy hadn't really been showing up, but like now it's really playable uh, in Standard. Whoa, whoa, are, whoa, whoa. You said Yorian Sky Nomad is, is now playable. That That's, an, Zend- that's like Zendikar that's- Rising, bro. No, no, that's an Ikoria oh, really? card. Yeah. Damn, dude. All right, all right, all right. Back it up, back it up. So they printed this awesome new card in Zendikar Rising. Uh, it's called Trail of Crumbs, and you just get to make a bunch of foods. <sighs> and I, I, Arjuna, I see what you're doing. I'm on to you. Bro. <laughs> Bro. Trail of Crumbs is from Eldraine. Food is very, food is like an old mechanic at this point. Like we, we were Okoing and Cauldron familiaring with this stuff. We're, we're trying to bring our listeners new content here, Covert Go Blue. So, um, you know, keep it focused, bro. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm the problem. Go on. All right. There's this sweet new card that they print in Zendikar Rising. Uh, it's called Thieves Guild Enforcer. And this guy's Arjuna. been- Arjuna, <laughs> Arjuna. When I find out the joke, you're supposed to get off the joke. That's how you're doing it wrong, man. All <laughs> right, Thieves all Guild right, Enforcer right. is from M twenty something. Because <laughs> we're still doing like the model of car, right? Where it's M twenty one and M twenty. Yeah, I, I know, yeah. right? It's oh, the year right. ahead. It's like it's like twenty first century yeah. for the year two. Th- I know, whatever, whatever. All right, so so Kova Go Blue called me out, and uh, I think that. <laughs> This is somewhat uh, getting into some of my opinions of this new standard format, which is that it basically reminds me a lot of some old standard formats. However, on an unsarcastic note, we actually have had a number of cool new cards from Zendikar Rising that people are playing with a lot. Cards that have definitely been defining the new Mata game. So really excited to jump into that with you, CGB. I know that you've been playing an incredible amount of standard I know that you are probably already an expert in some of the archetypes that are most prominent here in the format. So I'm, yeah, I'm stoked to jump into that. Yeah. And like uh, you were saying before the show, before the jokes completely kicked into high gear, hopefully we can give the viewers an overview of most of the decks that they're going to encounter on ladder and some ideas about how we feel about them, what card choices might help and where the meta I guess what's best and where it's going, because I feel like for the first 
time in a long time. We have a meta that doesn't look like a skyscraper with a giant King Kong monkey on top, just laughing at everyone and swatting airplanes as they try to interfere. Uh, instead, we have a wheel. And what is good depends on what other people are playing because most decks can adapt and how you adapt your deck as well as what deck you select have a huge impact on how you perform, which is so weird. But sort of what you're getting at, and maybe it's a deeper rant that you have, the bannings, the bannings did what I think we wanted them to do, which is unban a lot of cards, but they weren't just from Zendikar. They were from all the other sets, basically making a whole bunch of things playable. And the, I guess the thing that might frustrate some people is that those things are things we already tried. We already have done food stuff. We've already done Yorian stuff. We've already done Croxa stuff. We've already done Thieves Guild Enforcer stuff, although not on the level we're going to get into. So I can see how some people, um, like yourself possibly, find revisiting some of these things monotonous and wish that we could maybe turn the wheel a bit faster into something fresh. Well, that's exactly what I'm getting at here. And honestly, it's a little bit of a disingenuous joke from me because I think the reality of it is that post-rotation standard is always, I think, going to be that. Um, I think one of one of the reasons it didn't feel that way last rotation was because the set that blew us through was Eldraine. And it was basically like, everything's going to be new now, suckers, because what else are you even going to play? What else is worth playing in this format except every single one of these new busted Eldraine cards? So I think that there is a certain amount of like expectations management that we have to do when the new set that's ushering us into a new rotation uh, has a lot of really interesting and playable cards, but not, you know, not nearly the number of haymakers and just archetype definers that we had in a set like Eldraine. So I think that's part of any new rotation format is just realizing, okay, this is like four sets we already know and only one new set that we don't know. And it's just not, it's unlikely in the future to turn the format on its head. What do you think? I agree with you. And I want to add one more thing to that because Eldraine basically banned mid-range, broke the mana system, and printed the most powerful Planeswalker and one of the most powerful cards of all time. Zendikar Rising, compared to a lot of sets, quite honestly, is not very fresh. <laughs> Landfall. No. Landfall. Wee! Play a land. Get a thing. We've been there, done that. Kind of sick of it because we ramped all the last year. Um, party. Not really a thing yet. Maybe it will be by next year this time, D&D set or something. But Party, I think, is far from a flushed out competitive mechanic. It doesn't really have an impact. So now we have decks like tearing up ladder here and, and, and having impact that are just completely printed. They're, they're full of cards from Theros Beyond Death. They're full of cards from Eldraine. And so, you know, Zendikar kind of had... It, it, I don't want to say it was a one-card set, it feels like that sometimes. If you're not playing rogues, it feels like it was a one-card set. Well, and I think parts of the reason for that is that I think a lot of the the heaviest hitting cards from Zendikar Rising are actually cards that are just going to become some of the kind of glue cards of the format, not necessarily like these game enders, but just like 
various DFCs, lands in general, right? The pathways are super important. All of these mythic DFCs, and then even a number of the common and uncommon ones. You know what that's, you know what that's like? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it just hit me. Like, that, that's a core set. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, gave right. us a late, they gave us a late core set with some glue cards and some mana fixy stuff. Yeah, that's what it is. They, they they switched it around. They gave us a core set with heavy hitters like Ugin and format defining cards like Scavenging Ooze, and then they just gave us the <laughs> they gave us the core set later in the year. Plus Omnath. Plus Omnath, <laughs> but you know we like to pretend that that part of our history is already in the in the distant past, as it were. So yeah, so I think that this is a very important set, and I think that moving forward having a good collection of Zendikar Rising cards is going to be important to be able to play in constructed formats because there are just a lot of very, very staply cards, but just not as many of the Embercleaves of the world, shall we say, not as many of the Yorians of the world, shall we say. So that's just an important thing, I think, to to kind of acknowledge about this set so far. And I, I will say, before we get into the nitty gritty, I'm a little bit disappointed that the party stuff isn't as of yet particularly playable and standard. And one of the things that kind of bothers me about that is that if you look at some of the cards that you'd be most excited to play in a party deck, the party mechanics seem to be really centered around color combinations like Azorius. And guess which color combination doesn't have good fast mana? Yeah. <laughs> There's another pretty good party combination in Rakdos. And guess which other color combination didn't get a pathway? Rakdos. Tapped base camp, man. It's, it gets worse every day. I can't believe it. So that's just kind of a disappointment for me in this set, because to be honest, that is some of the newness that I was craving. And I think, okay, like let's talk about Eldraine, for example. They introduced, you know, their big kind of creature-based mechanic in Eldraine was Adventure, which turned out to be like one of the most playable mechanics we've seen in a very long time. Look at all of the definitely uncommon, maybe there are even some playable common adventure creatures, definitely pretty much all of the rare and mythic adventure creatures with like format-defining cards. So that was one of the reasons it was a really exciting set to play, was that the supported mechanic was really deep and it really opened up a lot of possibilities. Now, usually we don't get that. Usually it's a little bit narrower. Like I think Mutate is a good example where there's only one really format-defining Mutate creature that I can think of, and that's Gemraiser. But even some of the other ones were fairly powerful, and you can put together like a Mutate deck, which has been probably never been at the top of the format, but definitely something you could take on the ladder and get some wins with and maybe even get some Mythic with. And so I just feel a little bit disappointed that I feel like Party's not really there. I can't think of one party creature that really stands out and makes you want to do a party thing. Fans of the show, tweet at Arena Arena Deckless Pod on Twitter uh, with your party decks, your mythic screenshots, your mythic (laughs) rank, and your party deck list. Let's let's give Arjuna some some hope. Yeah, man. So I'm I'm with you. I hope that these few. I hope that party is a mechanic they're really intending to support moving forward because it's sweet, and I think a lot of people would like it, including myself. So would like to see that get supported in the future. All right. So that's just a little bit of an overview. Let's dive into some of the specifics of this format. And CGB, you had a good suggestion here, which is that. Uh, This weekend that we're recording this, it will have happened by the time you listen, but it's kind of current events. We have the first session 
of the MPL meeting. And what does this mean? This represents a huge, uh, I would say a starting point in conglomerating this standard format. These events and basically this ongoing league, I think is going to be really, really key in terms of what ends up being considered the standard format and what the best decks are. And so I think this is a really good place for us to start in talking about the format. So I think we're, we're probably going to focus a little bit on some of these MPL deck lists, and then we'll try to cover a few other archetypes that aren't represented there, but which you'll probably run into on the ladder to try to give you a fuller sense of, you know, just so that like when you're going into your games in the coming weeks, you feel like you have a good idea about what you're going to face and what to do about it. So where do you want to start with these MPL deck lists, CGB? So I wanted to start with just a quick look at the metagame. For those out there wondering what's going on with the MPL and the Pro League, basically what you need to know is MPL, uh, the Magic Pro League, and the Rivals League are made up of some of the best players in the world, and this weekend Wizards has decided they must do endless battle to the death for money. So, <laughs> okay, not to the death, but uh, that's the only part that's not true. They're going to play standard. It's going to be very competitive. They're doing it for a lot of money and stakes. So that always is a good benchmark for how the best players in the world think about the game. So in the MPL, we have eight Demir Rogue decks, six Azorius Blink Yorian decks, four Gruul Adventure decks, two Teamer Ramp decks, one Demir Control, one Esper Doom Foretold, and one Jeskai Yorian deck, and one Rakdos Midrange deck. So Rogues leading the pack, Yorian strategies, if we book them together, is actually tied because Esper Doom Foretold and Jeskai Blink are Yorian decks as well. So eight each of those, about a third of the field each, with then Gruel Adventures, Teamer Ramp, and this Demir Control list and Rakdos Midrange list hanging out. So right away, the pros seem to think that Demir Rogues and Yorian strategies have risen to the top of the, just the top of the heap. So that's the first thing I wanted to note. Like, what do you think of that? Did you see that coming? Uh, it's somewhat. Okay, so I had an estimation that Rogues would definitely be one of the top contending lists. And I think one of the reasons for that is just that it's so good at hitting on multiple angles. It can play you know, like a somewhat convincing control game if it wants to. It can definitely beat you down if it wants to. Um, it has this powerful alternate win con in the form of just milling you out by bringing in some crabs, etc., etc. So I, there's a lot to like about the rogues deck, and I can see why the pros especially like it, because I think it is a very skill-intensive deck. I think the the ceiling on how well you can do with it relative to you know your skill level versus other decks is very very high it's an exciting deck to watch people play at a really high level i for one think it's really cool that it's a big player in the meta game and also notably it's just a new archetype which really hasn't been playable before the set came out or at least i would argue <laughs> so i think that's really yeah. cool okay so this is what i'm a little bit more curious about and maybe you can give me some insight I haven't played these matchups a lot, but if I were to line up just like a Yorian deck versus a Rogues deck, I kind of feel like Rogues, in my guess, wouldn't have an excellent matchup against Yorian because Yorian is so much about value. Maybe it's just that these Yorian decks tend to be slow enough that the Rogue decks can just kind of get in there and get them dead. 
But I mean, notably, these Yarian decks, uh, I don't know how many of them are running Yarian as companion. I assume all of them, but I, I, you know, I haven't actually verified that. But they start off with 80 cards. So right there, your mill, your mill them to death plan is, while still somewhat viable in the long game, it's definitely not as strong of a plan as it could have been. So that's kind of one angle of attack that's cut off from you. And then, you know, if they're playing all of these Maze Mind Tomes and Skyclave Apparitions and all of this kind of stuff, I just feel like the Yorian decks have a lot of game against a deck like Rogues. So I don't know, like, what do you think about that particular metagame matchup? I think that it leads to a different question, which may not, maybe we can come back to the question, but we have to answer this first. We really do. What is Demir Rogues? Because it is so different, quite honestly. So the very first like deck we pull up by world champion Carlos Ramau has 16 creatures, four Merfolk Windrobber, four Soaring Thought Thief, four Th- Thieves Guild Enforcer, and four Ruin Crab, with one Lurus, the Dream Den, in the sideboard. And, and let me just clarify that this deck and all the decks we're going to be talking about are pulled directly from the MPL, is that correct? Yeah, okay, the um, cool. magic.gg decklist page. So go to magic.gg slash decklists and you'll be able to find it in the Zendikar Rising League weekend, MPL decklist, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll, I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. So the first thing I want to clarify, if somebody has just been playing ladder and is listening to this podcast, I don't believe, we, we may find this out to not be true, but I've glanced through this once and I don't think anybody is playing the version of Rogues that is like three Rankle, three Zarethson, four Nighthawk Scavenger, four Brazen Borrower. You know, nobody nobody is playing the deck as Curve Out, one, two, three, four, aggro. And I think that that is a very important thing to know because a lot of people, when they talk about Rogues and what has a good and bad matchup with Rogues, are thinking of a deck that isn't being played at the top levels. Rogues as a strategy face this fundamental flaw of crashing into escape cards and giving people value in their graveyard and then just being kind of ground out because they added to that graveyard value. The decks that we're seeing, like this this version has 16 creatures. Four of them just mill the opponent. They have zero three, you know. These, these are not built to be aggressive decks. These are strange mid these i i don't know how to talk about it like are they control are they mid-range but they can also just go aggro but in a way that attacks the deck and the face to create multiple pressure points and they're full of answers like this one it has four drown in the lock which is the best answer card we've had in a long time now that uro is gone uh, a Counterspell or a Doomblade. It has three Heartless Act. It has two Mystical Dispute. You know, It has three Blood Chiefs Thirst and a Low Mage's Domination in the main. This is, it has more removal than some control decks we've seen. And it has four into the story to just draw four and do it all again. So what is Rogues? It's actually a really hard question to answer, quite honestly. So when you're looking at the Yorian matchup, you have to first figure out what, you're even playing playing against. Because if we go through the rogue deck lists in this pile, we're going to see like eight creatures, 12 creatures, 10 creatures, 16 creatures. Like there, there's very little, like look at this version by Gabriel Nassif. He's a known control mage. 
Four Thieves Guild Enforcer, four so- Soaring Thought Thief. That's, That's it. it for the creatures. That's it for the creatures. He is running four Shark Typhoons, so mm-hmm. I have to imagine that that's kind of part of his backup creature suite, as it were. But yeah, this, I mean, this just looks like a, pretty much a straight-up control deck. We have two didn't-say-please <laughs> to fill the graveyard. Yeah, Gabe getting polite over here. There are no crabs in the entire uh, deck list. In the entire 75. No wow. Yep. Which is a, a bold choice. In I mean, in my opinion, again, I haven't played this deck a lot, but I, I feel like it's a pretty good idea to have some crabs in the 75, but maybe Gabe is just deciding, like, out for a penny, out for a pound, I'm just not going to commit to that being a game plan, and I'm just going to try to do something else with my deck. Ramau's deck is kind of a tribal mill deck the 16 creature version it's like this weird multiple points of pressure mid-rangey almost thing nasif this is a control deck and the best cards are enabled by a one mana creature and a two mana creature yeah like that's that's what's going on here it's it's bizarre to see one two drop creatures in control it's a concession to the fact that a lot of the best cards in this archetype just have to be turned on with the eight cards in the graveyard thing. And so as a concession to that, we're going to be running this kind of bare minimum of random cheap rogue creatures to cross that threshold. I guess like have some death touch blockers and have some annoying little henpeckers to force your control or slower opponents to have to react to what you're doing. Henpeckers? We're talking about a one mana three two death touch with upside of torturing your opponent mentally, dude. Hey man, I'm a I'm a mono green mage over here, all right? <laughs> yeah, you don't like death touch though. <laughs> that's that's true. It's a it's a nasty chicken scratch, I will say that. There we go. So like when we're trying to answer your original question about this versus Yorian, it's completely different. If somebody has an 80-card Yorian list and you roll up with Ruin Crab, you are at a bit of a disadvantage. You have to add like another two turns to your clock, and during those two turns, your opponent probably accumulates more resources, and spot removal isn't great against Yorian. Heartless Act, Blood Chief's Thirst, kill your Yorian, fine. I gained like a million value off it and I'll get it back in a minute with my ECD. Those decks, the mill plan, those can get ground out. On the other hand, Nasif, this deck is never tapping out. There are two Blood Chiefs Thirst and one Agadim's Awakening. Those are your sorceries. The only sorcery speed cards in the deck. (laughs) It's wild. You are never casting a five mana Yorian and getting that thing to work. It's just not happening. You know, so here's my question: Does a deck like this get buried by Maze Mind Tome? Does a deck like this get buried? So that's an interesting thing, and I think that the weird dimension added we talked about these Guild Enforcer and Soaring Thought Thief being enablers in control deck, they're a little better than that because it does mean the opponent can't just sit there doing nothing for the first like six turns of the game, accumulating resources. The typical control mirror is I play land, you play land, and if I snuck out a Search for Ezkanta or a Maze Mind Tome, I'm gaining value while playing land. Eventually, you miss a land drop, and I get ahead. Like, that's traditional control. Because in the meantime, we're just staring at each other with a handful of counters, right? This deck says, okay, you play Maze Mind Tome, I play Thieves Guild Enforcer, I play Soaring Thought Thief. Within two turns, there's eight cards in your graveyard, and you're taking six a turn. 
And so you can't just sit there and be like, I draw with my maze mind tome. I draw with my maze mind tome. If you do that for four turns in a row, your life total is in danger and your deck is getting smaller. It could end very badly for you in a number of ways. I think of this as just being a very dynamic matchup because these Yorian decks, except for maybe like your random Selesnia version or whatever, are all, you know, they have access to their own counter magic. They have access to their own things to be played at instant speed. One of the things I'd love to hear you talk about when we get into this Yorian topic is just all of the different ways that you can build and play the deck. Because like, for example, you're looking at a version of a Yorian deck here, which has a couple of Dream Trawlers in it, right? Which is like, Dream Trawler is about as opposite of a plan as you can imagine from like the rogues deck, for example. So some of these Yorian decks, and I would say a lot of them, I, I would guess in the main, are definitely just tap out decks through and through, right? Uh, okay, so you're showing me here there's like plenty of instants in this deck. There's an interesting tension though, right? Like I think there's an interesting tension in these Yorian decks between tapping out versus not. Like wh why don't you take us through that a little bit more? Sure, because this is, this is a week of development while we were in limited in our limited castle last week, like this meta has been going around. And about this time last week, I would have been talking about a green white total tap out Yorian list that doesn't just try to, you know, play a few bits of value. It actually tries to ramp out Yorian and then blink it five or six times the green white Yorian list. And maybe we'll come back to that before all is done. The way that the meta has shaped is that the tap out Yorian lists have been completely victimized by rogues, by Yorian decks that do not only tap out and include some amount of counter magic, like the version that I have on my screen. It has four essence scatters. It has two mystical disputes. It has three negates and it has a sublime epiphany. Like that's a lot of counter magic, even in an 80 card deck. And this is Javier Dominguez's version, just so that you, you listening at home can follow along the deck list we're talking about here. Yeah. World champion Javier Dominguez. And the other one that's the other two decks that are, I, I think I mentioned rogues. I mentioned this version and the other deck that victimizes the tap out Yorian list is another deck we'll get to, Gruel Adventures, with the Embercleave, of just plowing right through all that value. Right, you need interaction to, to you know, stop them on a key turn. It's so interesting, though, right? Because if you look at, at Javier Dominguez's list, he's running two Dream Trawlers, he's running four Skyclave Apparitions, he's running four Solemn Simulacrums, right? Um, he's Sad running Robot. You know, he's running Shatter the Sky. He's running Maze Mine Tomes and Glass Caskets. So it's kind of funny because roughly half of this deck is Tap Out and Pray. And the other half of the deck is Instant Speed Interaction. So, and I guess part of it is just that when you're Javier frickin' Dominguez, you can pick your spots pretty well. And you, you know, you just have a very good feel for when's a safe turn to Tap Out versus when is not. But this deck just has more of that tension than I'm typically used to seeing. I feel like these old Yorian decks that weren't tap out decks tended to play more like, for example, Shark Typhoons. They tended to play more Brazen Borrowers. They tended to play more of these rando stuff that I can do to get advantage if I leave my mana up kind of cards. And maybe it's just that Maze Mind Tome, maybe, you know, he's leaning on cards like Maze Mind Tome to give him something to do with his mana when his essence scatters, when his mystical disputes, his negates aren't doing anything on the opponent's turn. This deck seems to have that tension to me. When you look at a deck list like this, 
Do you think that he's going to get left behind if he's playing against an opponent who has more to do with their mana at instant speed? I think that it's a good thing to notice because when you think about the Gabriel Nassif roguelist, there's no tension, right? Everything yeah. is flash. Like the, yeah. the reactive nature is very in your face. This deck, it's hard to call a deck that plays Solemn Simulacrum proactive and it does look really weird in the spot. It's like, huh, we're both in a stalemate. I'm going to tap out, go shields down with two essence scatters in my hand to play a 2-2 two, two artifact creature. I like that. That seems weird. So I get what you're saying. And I think that I think that this kind of list shows that you take these risks, you get yourself into this spot with the list. It has answers to everything. It's all about how they line up and you make your reads and you make your plays. And uh, if you're a world champion, you probably know when to tap out and when not to. If yeah. you're sitting there on the ladder with a solemn in hand and not sure if you're supposed to play that or hold your negate open, then you're going to have to make a decision. But Oh my gosh, magic where it's not absolutely clear that you slam Nissa on turn four, you know? I, I think that's okay. I'm down. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely down. And when I look at this list, it looks to me like a list designed by and piloted by someone who's just a lot better at magic than I am. Because I'll tell you what, like I I would not know how to go about piloting this list in this matter just from reading it. I would really need to get in some reps and figure out like what were the spots when you tap out for your dream trollers. When you look at a deck that has four Solemn Simulacrums, four Skyclave Apparition, four Elspeth Conquers Death in the main deck. That's like a that's a lot of main phase, man. That's a lot of tapping out on the main phase. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that the formats we're coming out of required us to be so streamlined and hardcore committed to plans because the decks were just so broken that anything that strayed from the plan was a vulnerability. And I think that's where these Yorian lists started in this format. But I think that what the, this is showing, and it's a sign of a healthy format, is you need to be able to do both of what you're talking about. Because if you're the deck that only tries to go hard and tap out, you'll get punished by the deck that added some essence scatter to their deck and some mystical dispute and negate to their deck. So you have to have the options. I also love the sideboard. And this started the trend last week with the blue-white Azorius deck was that it was that it was what you were saying. The main deck was full-in Yorian Blink with Thassa and Charming Prince, right? And cards like that, just the engine. And then the sideboard was oftentimes like nine counter spells and four shark typhoons and two glass caskets, you know, so that you could shift into a full blue-white control for the right matchup. Now we see that that's worked its way into the main and the sideboard takes it even further. The sideboard has two giant killers, two mystical disputes, four shark typhoon, one sublime epiphany and two mystic, myth, mystic subduel. And all those are instant speed plays. So you can drive the deck away from the tap out direction when you need to in the matchups you need to do it in. Yeah. Well, certainly a fascinating deck and one I'm really going to be interested to look at. Now, I'm curious to hear, so that was one example of one of these Yorian decks, but I know that there's many others. I think that the most popular right now is the blue-white, which we just covered, and it borders between being a control deck and a blink deck. Another one that's become really popular, and I just recorded on this one, 
Uh, but this list that I'm looking at is uh, from Allie Warfield, and this is the Turbo Dream Trawler build. Whoa. Hold up. Turbo, Turbo Dream Trawler. Four copies of Transmogrify? <laughs> Transmogrify and Luca Coppercoat Outcast with Dream Trawler as the only creature in the deck. Wow. And the way that you get the creature to turn into this is with the tokens um, from Omen of the Sun, Shark Typhoon, Birth of Melitus, or possibly castles, um, right? the castles. Yep. Yeah. We saw this in Jeskai Luca, but without Agent of Treachery, now we have just get turn four Dream Trawler, and if they can't kill it, they die. So that's fun. This, it did get a new card, Valakut Awakening. Ah, okay. All right. So, so if you get the Dream Trawler stuck in your hand, you can put them on the bottom and draw some freshies. Here's something that stands out to me in this list. Four Transmogrify, one Luca. What's up with that split? It's the idea that the early Dream Trawler, you only need one. Okay. Um, so when you make a play like that, it's, it's the idea that just this is it. You know, they can't race it. They can't kill it. And that is probably, maybe that's most effective against a Gruel deck although even with em Embercleave still scares me to be honest like I'm not yeah. even sold there. Dream Trawler doesn't block that well. When you think about the decks that were looking popular like Red Black Kroxa and Golgari Adventures turn for Dream Trawler that's probably GG. Rogues have a lot of instant speed interaction which makes Transmogrify look bad. I but know if... I'd be afraid to run this against Rogues. Here's the thing that maybe you want to think about against rogues. If you go for Transmogrify and they kill the creature, and then the next turn you go for a Luka or you go for some other big effect, or maybe you make a Shark Typhoon to block their Soaring Thought Thief and they have to kill that, and then on turn six you slam a Dream Trawler and they're out of stuff, maybe that's just good enough. One of them's going to stick eventually kind of a thing? It's how it feels. I, I'm, I, This list... I found that it really only went as far as people just weren't ready for Dream Trawler. As soon as I played against some mad lad with mono black control and four extinction events and two Ugans in their deck, I was, I, I, I guess my deck doesn't work. You know, that it, like that's what I found playing this build. Interesting. Well, it definitely looks like a very linear idea. So I'll be really curious to see how it pans out. Okay, another fork in the road. Can I interest you in some Doom Foretold? Okay, me personally, stepping out of my podcast personality, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm about the last person in the world who wants to ever see another Doom Foretold on the battlefield ever. However, from my professional interest as a Magic content creator, yes, Covert Go Blue, I would love to talk about this deck. <laughs> then I then good. Not only do I have one deck to talk about, there are three. There is Esper Doom Foretold, there is Abzan Doom Foretold, and there are there is Mardu Doom Foretold. All Yorian decks. Ma Doom Foretold. All with different options. Yeah. So Ben Stark has an Abzan Doom Foretold here. And the green, guess what? Food. Wow, yeah, Gilded Goose we got going on here. We got four Wicked Wolves in the main. Wow. Yep, it's a Trail of Crumbs deck as well. Yep. Got it. The, the, the green engine of Goose and Crumbs still could have a home, and here we are. We got Omen of the Hunt, which 
Yeah. Can I interest you in some omen of the hunt? Something to sack to the doom. That okay, so here's here's what I'm interested in with this deck. This deck isn't running eggs. So I'm assuming that this is a bit of a like a not necessarily a turbo doom deck. Maybe Ben's not setting up to slam doom on turn four, but rather trying to get some value in the early game with getting down because like he's probably not excited to sack a trail of crumbs to a doom foretold, right? No, but he's pretty excited to sack a treacherous blessing in Omen of the Sun, Omen of the Hunt, or Acquisitions Expert. A lot of the value is actually tied up in the critters, you know? Acquisitions Expert, Lanoir Visionary, Gilded Goose, Charming Prince. This is interesting. Okay, so so what he's saying with this deck is, if my plan of getting value out of my creatures with Yorian isn't looking like the best thing to do, then maybe a B plan is to get value out of them using Doom Foretold. So that's kind of an interesting point. It's kind of like my my little dork that eked out a little bit of value can now get me value in, in two ways, right? As opposed to like, if someone was just countering, you know, if someone was holding off a mystical dispute for your Yorian or whatever in the past, you were kind of locked out. Whereas now you can just slam your Doom Foretold and kind of get your value that way. Yeah, yeah, that that is true. I always find that plan to be much more fragile because killing creatures usually isn't a big ask for a number of decks. And then your doom ends up going away. And it's sad. I will say that this deck has Skyclave Shade in the sideboard, which if they don't exile the shade is kind of an awesome combination with Doom Foretold because you just get it back every turn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I will say if you run into Abzan Doom Foretold on the ladder, uh, Ben Stark in his great MPLness is not playing it, but the occasional jank master might pull out the eerie ultimatum to get back the whole squad. It's like a dance of the manse, but more. I mean, come on, who's going to resist the temptation to run at least one of those in the deck, right? I not, not <laughs> me on the ladder. That's for sure. I would be playing that on the ladder. Same thing with dance of the manse in like an Esper version. But uh, speaking of Esper, we've got Esper, Doom foretold as well. Actually, does this version have Doom? Actually, it doesn't. This is an Esper Yorian list. It is a control version that has... It says Esper. Where's the black cards? Elspeth's Nightmare. We did There you go. We reached it. it. Wow, that really is, huh? That's like the only black card in the deck. So I guess some sideboard action with Cling Cling to Dust dust. and stuff like that. That's it. Yeah. That's all. Well, let's talk about Elspeth's Nightmare, actually, because this is a card that hasn't really gotten its fun in the sun in standard so far. Definite house in limited. And actually, um, I don't know. I've, I've thought for a long time that Nightmare was actually a fairly potent card in Historic, even though it's maybe not seen a lot of play there. But talk me through, like, what are the reasons we're excited about Elspeth's Nightmare right now? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not. not. I hate okay. this. Oh, I hate this card with a passion. Every time I play with this card, their creatures are always three power or more. Their hand has zero spells to take. Their graveyard is irrelevant. Like my experience with this card is three mana and I clowned myself. <laughs> yeah, three mana. My opponent played around it and I eventually exiled their graveyard. In the right spots, I think this can be pretty good against the rogues deck. So that's probably where like you're probably hoping to slam this on turn three and just hit some dorky rogue 
And then, you know, I suppose the dream scenario, right, is like, you know, you kill one of that flash rogues before they get to the two, uh, three power. And then, you know, the next turn you take one of their counter spells and then the next turn you exile a graveyard and you feel really good about it, right? But Dude, every time I try that, they have a Thieves Guild Enforcer and they have a Soaring Thought Thief and I have six cards in my graveyard and I cast Elspeth's Nightmare and they play the second Soaring Thought Thief, mill it to eight and all their creatures have three or four power. And you lose the game on And the I'm dead. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, yep. It, it was a good game. Both sides fought hard, and I cut the freaking Elspeth's Nightmare from my deck. <laughs> That's that. But um, there there is a popular version in Esper. Like this is Esper Blink. There's the Esper Doom Vertold, which also runs Dance of the Mance, which has seen a resurgence because of rogues. Because rogues fill your graveyard so that your Dance of the Mance hits early and often. It used to be really embarrassing to cast Dance of the Mance for like three with one thing in your graveyard, right? On turn five. And now when you do that, you're often getting two or three things and fueling the future. Like it's like Dance of the Mance got another second life here because we have free graveyard fodder. It's pretty, pretty fun, actually. I I love that card. Some reasonable things to get back with it. There's a certain amount of negative synergy, like for example, with Maze Mind Tome being a card that you're most likely not going to get back with your Dance of the Mance. It's kind of rare that that card goes to the graveyard, usually just goes to exile. So, you know, some things like that to kind of work out. But yeah, I I think that it's cool that Dance is, is seeing some life again. So Mardu Doom foretold this deck by Chris Patello. Now this is a spicy one running not one but two copies of Ruinous Ultimatum in the main. What is going on with this deck? This is another Yorian deck. This is another 80 card pile. One could say all the Ruinous crabbery and mill thought thieving and such has made people want to play 80 card piles more than normal. And I don't think they'd be wrong. The only red cards in the main are four copies of Omen of the Forge, which is two damage to any target enchantment with flash for two. And then we have two ruinous ultimatums and four shatter skull smashing the land that can also kill stuff and make red mana, which is kind of crazy to be honest. Now the sideboard has three Croxa. I often wonder if those ever even come back with this mana base, but the, the one-sidedness of Ruinous Ultimatum when you get into the late game, like that is a Yorian Mirror Breaker that cannot be mystical disputed for one mana. No, that's true. They, they have to mean it if they want to counter this card. And if they don't, yikes. All your stuff is gone. Yeah, pretty good. That's, that's pretty cool. And in the absence of a card like, for example, Ugin, which I don't know if this deck runs any copies of. Looks like it doesn't. That ultimatum is kind of the get out of jail free card. So yeah, that's uh, that's pretty exciting. So, okay, tell me about this. Omen of the Forge, a card that we mostly haven't seen in standard. It kills an innkeeper. It kills Thieves Guild Enforcer. What else are we trying to hit with the Omen of the Forge? 
I, uh, <laughs> I, I here's it, it's an interesting one because obviously if you're not blinking it and you're not sacking it to doom foretold what the heck are you doing it could be a bone crusher giant right that's what i'm thinking a, a card which is seems notably absent from all of these mpl deck lists especially after it had what like a like a 90% play rate in the, the last big tournament or something like that? Well, we haven't covered the Gruel deck yet. It's not completely absent. Okay, but, okay. But but I, I you're right. This is this is obviously a sellout to the full I either want a Yorian or Doom foretold this very badly. It's it's a concession that you're playing a weaker card to satisfy your key cards. I there's no other way around it. Well, I suppose it's filling in that spot in the curve that the Omen of the Sea was was filling in in these blue lists, right? So I guess that's it is just kind of a curve filler. Interesting card. I, I'd be really curious to see how that one stacks up. I also wonder which matchup do you want to sideboard in for Timurit Calls the Dead and three Croxes and just go for that in your 80? You know, that's pretty funky. And, and we have two copies of Necromentia. Do you think that... Two copies of Necromentia is this deck's answer to Ugin. I mean, all of these are Yorian lists. And you can see, just like Rogues, the amount of variation, even among the best players of the world. And remember, a lot of these people test together. They prepare together. They've known each other for years. Like, the variation is insane. It really is, right? These decks are so different from one person to another. And just calling them Yorian decks, the styles are so divergent. There's so many different things going on. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. These are the kinds of questions that events like the MPL weekend are really going to help us drill down to because I have a feeling that by next week, about 60% of these URN lists will no longer be considered competitive in the standard Mata game. Wow. Okay. Interesting. That's my prediction. I don't know. I think that we're going to come down to maybe like two main Yorian builds that most people consider to be viable. Maybe maybe I'm getting ahead of myself there, but I just have a feeling that a number of these deck lists are going to get called pretty quickly. Uh, I think you're right. And I think that we will see a convergence, but I still think it's really cool that we've had time to play this format for two weeks and there isn't convergence yet. Like that's so different from where we've been. And I don't think I answered the question however it started out rogues versus yorian basically it depends because there's like 10 different yorians and there's like five different rogues and how each one can be built to match up with the other so the key this is going to be so cool to watch the key matchup the defining matchup in the format between the two best decks is a hundred percent like deck dependent and there are uh, several different builds it's awesome yeah it's pretty exciting if you're the kind of person who likes to get into the nitty-gritty of a format and the nitty-gritty of figuring this kind of stuff out, then Standard is a perfect place for you right now. So yeah, go go have fun in the playground. So why don't you take us through some of these other archetypes here? Because like, like I am excited to talk about Gruel Adventures here, kind of carrying the torch as perhaps the lone aggro deck in this current format. Yeah, this deck is a lot more, um, what, what would be the right word? Like, like we mostly know the right version of this deck for the most yeah, part. Yeah, it's like somewhat this solidified. Yeah, it's pretty solidified. Um, I'm going to, 
on screen, we've got Brad Nelson's list. Brad Nelson is a known lover of all things like mid-range and grindy, but Brad, uh, and he has a podcast, the Bash Bros podcast. He believes this is the best deck for the weekend. And when I did the Monday meta, which is the show I do every Monday, big surprise, stunning. Um, But what I found on the MTG Melee site, which is where all the tournament data for Magic is being located, was that Gruel Adventures started out the weekend, like at the very beginning of the weekend, doing not as great. By the end of the weekend, the tournaments that were being held, Gruel Adventures was putting up like 58% win rate minimum. And going and and that was like the best by far among the most played decks and going up to like 60% again and again in multiple tournaments. So pretty good sample size. And the Gruel Adventure deck is the Embercleave deck that can bash through the most garbage. It's the biggest bulldozer. <laughs> all the crap that Yorian can put on the battlefield and all the nonsense, all the hoops Rogues makes you jump through just to hit them. Gruel Adventures is the one that has the biggest output. And if they blink for a second, the 7-7 seven, seven Brushfire Elemental gets the sword. And when the and that's so much better than just about all of Mono Red stuff. You know what I mean? Or whatever the other Embercleave deck is. Can we take a moment to just lament? Probably not for you. You're probably stoked about this. But Mono Red has just been blasted off the... It's like sandblasted off the face of the format. You're probably not going to see Mono Red anywhere right now, except for just randomly on the best of one ladder in the play queue. I mean, yeah, CGB is just doing his little his little dance here. I'm just He's dancing. Leaning back in his chair. It, you know? Hey, baby, let's settle in and hope this one lasts. <laughs> oh, it was fun. It was really fun seeing the mono red decks think our time is now and get smacked. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think somewhat lines up with our predictions of this format, right? I think that both you and I were A of all thinking that mono color aggro decks probably weren't going to be quite as strong. And that, you know, mono red decks were probably not going to be the best Embercleave decks in the format. And I think that it, it has borne out both of our predictions here. Well, you're, you're being way too kind. I said I wasn't sure. You were sure about that. So this, <laughs> okay. this one is yours. That mono, that mono colored aggro didn't have what it takes. I still think mono green is the best of them. Like Primal Might on a big trampling thing does its Embercleave impression. And the Great Henge is a good card when Elspeth Conqueror's death isn't showing up. But but Yorian is kind of kiboshed all those big creature, big green creature mid-range. You might have a rant about that you alluded to that we'll get to. Um, but anyway, this... I, I do think Gruel Adventures, that is the aggro deck. It just has the most punch, and it has engines in it. And this this deck has like the great hinge coming out of the sideboard. Vivian Monsters Advocate, which is actually Three a really good copies. grindy. Yeah, yeah, it's a good grindy planeswalker when things go long. And uh, Ox of Agonis, which is amazing against rogues to just keep the engine flowing. Just stay gassed up. So here's something that's interesting to me is that, and I don't know about mono green, but it definitely seems like in these gruel lists, people seem to be coming down on the side of Vivian as opposed to the side of Garrick. So, and to me, that definitely speaks to wanting to play more of a long game, whereas Garrick's definitely more of a try to get the game over with kind of a card. So I'm just curious, like, do you, do you think Garrick has been kind of deprecated in favor of Vivian these days in these green decks? 
Yes, but I think it I, I think it's more of like these tiny case scenarios that happen more than you think they should. Thing number one, if you play Ram through, you like Garrick. Hmm. Right? You yep. just give your creature trample and you play the Ram through and they die. Double but up on the damage. You, yep. Yeah, but this this deck has no room for that. It's run thirty-two creatures and four Embercleaves. You know? <laughs> yep. it, it ain't got time to ram through. And then the other piece about Garrick is if you're going to play the creature game, you have no creature, you play Garrick, you minus two it, you make a 3-3. Three, three. Now you have a two loyalty Planeswalker. That's vulnerable to Bonecrusher Giant. It gets picked off really easily or a Soaring Thought Thief in the air. You know, it just yeah. it goes down way too easy. Here's another question. Okay, so this is something that is on my mind about just about any card in this format. I feel like 4CMC is a very awkward place to be in a format full of Skyclave Apparitions, right? Because it's the only CMC of card where you definitively lose out tempo and mana when your opponent Apparitions it. Apparition is arguably a two for one, although the the second card you get is not very good. <laughs> it's a two two that when it dies gives your opponent another creature. So that's not a great, it's not a great second card you got out of the transaction. But you know, it's kind of like when they apparition your crab, you're kind of bummed about it. But when they apparition your Garrick, you are bummed about it, right? So I wonder how much of these concessions are people trying to play around that card because I didn't do the count, but there's a lot of copies of Skyclave Apparition in this lineup here. The card has become popular really quick. I I remember the first time I introduced it to my blue-white control and I was like, okay, I guess I'm a tap-out mage now because that card was just amazing. And it's just, it's continuing its, its march to ghostly domination, you know? It's, it's it's a good one and i think you're right i think that the four drop spot is awkward we see like two copies of questing beast for example and that's a card that actually gets good money against the apparition it can attack right over it it gets four damage in and people still don't want to put themselves in the position of having their four drop exiled by a three mana card because the azorius decks they can play the apparition exile your thing and hold up the essence scatter and the negate on turn five and pretty well covered yep they can also grab it back with ecd to just keep the fun going so yeah i would be boy i would be hesitant really to run questing beast at all i know i've been kind of down on that card lately and i just don't feel any higher on it now i can see so it's it's so interesting right because on the one hand questing beast is not very good against these yari index because of skyclave apparition because of ecd etc etc but and also, you know, the Yorian itself can just block the dang thing and trade. But on the other hand, it does get over all of the army of one ones. It does get past these Skyclave apparitions. It gets past the O4 walls from Birth of Miletus. And of course, when you stick a freaking flaming sword on it, you're just dealing nine damage basically no matter what. So, I mean, there are definitely reasons to play the dang thing. But I don't know. I just like, I feel a lot of tension there. You know, it's like half of it feels pretty great to me and the other half feels pretty bad to me. Yeah, you're also playing a deck that has a one mana one one and it draws a card in Edgewall Innkeeper. It draws a card that like if you play a Lovestruck Beast or a Bonecrusher Giant on three, you get a free card. But the rest of the time, it is just a one mana one one. And you've got Brushfire Elemental and that is only a 3-3 if you hit your land drop for the turn. The deck does need a lot of things to come together. 
it it really does, you know. So uh, it is a deck that I think has the variance, like it, it faces variance in every hand of just the wrong stuff lining up. But when it gets to do the things, it presents the biggest problems for the other decks in the format. And I think that's why it's still hanging around. With its best draws, and especially on the play, the deck can just be utterly unbeatable, not even close, right? But this is a deck like, man, do you ever want to be on the draw playing this deck? Because I'll tell you what, I do not. <laughs> You're right. We should we should just make a pact to always be on the play with this deck. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, maybe Brad Nelson's just lucky enough that, <laughs> you know, no. he's like, I got this covered, man. Die roll, got it covered. No worries. No, this this deck didn't get to a 60-ish percent win rate across multiple tournaments without having some play on the draw. I, I think that this is... No, I think it's a very good contender, and as awkward as it looks, it goes a little smoother than we expect because there's so much versatility in the cards, right? Yeah. Like, Bone Crusher Giant is a removal or a threat. Lovestruck Beast, same thing. Uh, Scavenging Ooze gets so increasingly better as the game goes on. Stone Coil fills any spot in the curve. Gem Razor just plows its way through all these Yorian enchantments. Tell you what, one card that has not gotten worse over time is Gem Razor. I remember way back when the podcast was younger, when I was talking to our friend Rint about the deck, and he was like, uh, you know, after thinking about it, I think Gem is probably the best card in the deck. I think it's probably still the best card in the deck. It's just very, very good. I think if you're playing green in this format, slam the Gem Razor, you will not be disappointed. Especially good in this deck because it gets bigger when you put it on a Brush Fire Elemental. It's good on Stone. It's just good. It's a good card. Let's talk about Rakdos here because we've got one of those copies here and it's definitely an archetype that people are going to play on the ladder. So one of the things right from the outset with Rakdos, one of the things that makes me deeply skeptical of this archetype is no pathway, the, the worst mana, right? I mean, this deck has to have some of the worst mana of any deck in the format, especially if you're trying to, I don't know, resolve something like Kroxa, for example. So where do you think this deck is positioned knowing what we know now, for example? So coming into the format, people were like, the Rakdos deck is good because it didn't lose anything and it was competitive before Omneth and Lucky Clover were banned. The reason Rakdos was competitive is because those decks relied on red for the most part for their removal and a turn four Kroxa like, was too big for them to kill. So Kroxa was very often, if you turboed it out by filling your graveyard with Timurit Calls the Dead and you just escaped it from your graveyard on turn four, or if a rogue deck handed it to you, like they, they had to discard a card. There was a six, six on the battlefield and they weren't going to remove it. So the next turn they were going to lose another card or more life and be on the clock. That's not the way the format is anymore. Like removal is a lot more prevalent and value is a lot easier to come by. And there's Skyclave apparition is in particular a card that just, is so happy when you Croxa. And then on top of that, people are playing Glass Casket. So the world has moved away from Rakdos midrange and Yorian was a nail in that coffin. A lot of pros have said that the matchup with Yorian is unplayable. And here's what's interesting to me. Do you see who's playing the only Rakdos midrange deck in this split? Yes. Yes, the probably the last person I would have expected, especially like 
Mr. Gandalf recently himself, Paulo Vitor Damodorosa world champion. So yeah. yeah, this is definitely, definitely, definitely a heady metagame call. And I mean, guy knows what he's doing. Tests with the best people in the world is one of the best people in the world. So obviously he thinks that this deck is going to be well positioned. But I mean, just a strange deck anyway you, anyway you shape it up, you know? Yeah, the interesting stuff here... People thought it hard-folded to Yorion, but the one thing you could never take away from Rakdos midrange, it made rogues miserable. Mm, yeah. Oh, does it torture the rogues? They hate it. And that rogues is one of the most played decks, you know, rogues and Yorian. That's the split at the top here. And if Paulo figured out the Yorian matchup and nobody else has, like, it's going to revitalize this archetype. If he has a great weekend, like Rakdos is back. And the technology I see in the deck, quite honestly, I, I'm, I, I don't know what's so different. I feel like I've played and tested all of these cards. Robber of the Rich was something I got rid of in my Croxa build very early on because I made them discard cards, so it never stole anything. Same. I, I was just going to say, that card stood out to me as an odd choice. But... Now people are going for value, right? They're maze mind toming and omen of the seeing and blinking them with Yorian. So maybe Robert gets in there and steals something awesome. I, I would still be scared to steal anything against those decks because they bounce stuff and they charming prince and charming prince can target a thing you own, as we may have learned. I don't know. I don't see it. It attacks well into a crab, still gets you some value in that situation. Another thing I noticed that this deck is not playing is the Channeler. So what happened to yeah. Magmatic Channeler, right? Wasn't that a reason to play this deck in the past? Magmatic Channeler, I love that card. So it does surprise me a lot. And we can see the version that showed, the version that Michael Jacob brought to the what was it called? The Grand Finals, okay? The big tournament before the Omnath ban had four magmat Magmatic Chandler, only one Meyer Triton, no Robber of the Rich, and it was because of Bone Crusher Giant, which Bone Crusher Giant was nine in 91% of decks. Um, and here, the we, we talked about where did Bone Crusher go? Now it's only in the Adventure decks, and here we see Robber of the Rich, Meyer Triton coming back, and no... Magmatic Chandlers. Now, Magmatic Chandler is a decision. It is a grindy card. It is a very bad, aggressive card. And Robber of the Rich sends you in a completely opposite direction. We are trying to get them dead. So that's, that's what I have to take away from it. I'm still surprised. I love Magmatic Chandler, man. I really do. I, I got addicted. Okay, so the reason this deck's so interesting to me, right, is that Rakdos in this format is really not an aggro deck. It's just not. I mean, maybe I'm going to get proven wrong. Maybe it is actually a, you know, kind of a sideways aggro deck of the format. But from my read of it, Robber of the Rich, Maya Triton, and Rankle being the only truly aggressive cards in the deck. I mean, I guess, okay, Bone Crusher Giant-ish can get in there, right? Croaksa can obviously end games very quickly when it actually comes down. But I don't know. I just, like, I don't see this deck attacking particularly effectively into this meta game. My, both Maya Triton 
and Robber of the Rich really don't line up very well against Omen of the Sun. And there's just various other ways to quite effectively deal with these threats. So I'm just a little bit curious if the get them dead plan of this deck is going to pan out. Yeah, like I said, I don't see it. But we're talking about potentially the best player in the world, the reigning world champion. I would expect that person to see things I don't see. So I hope he has a great weekend and just kind of puts on a clinic and shows us all how to beat Yorian with this deck. I really do, because I like this deck. I enjoy Rakdos midrange. So just one final thing to point out about this deck. There's a surprising amount of discard in it. So um, Kroxa, obviously, but Rankle can also make your opponent discard. Uh, Liliana is a good discarder. And then running three copies of Palaka Predation in the main. So... Which is, this is a card that I was fairly certain was going to show up, so I'm excited to see it here. And I think especially against Yorian lists, it's a very good card. Also a pretty excellent way to go after like an Into the Story at a key time, for example. And then as you're pointing out, there's some additional discard in the sideboard in the form of Duress, for example. There's some Elspeth's Nightmares, an additional Liliana. So, oh, and some Agonizing Remorse, right? So, um, so that's so just... Much. So there's actually a, like when you, when you go down the list and you put it together, there's a potential for an incredible amount of hand disruption in this deck. And I wonder if what he's trying to do is lean on aggression plus hand disruption to just like get in enough damage and to just disrupt the opponent enough that you can eventually just resolve a Croxa from the yard and end the game right there. The Croxa burn plan. Yeah, which I'll tell okay. you what, man, Croxa ends games very quickly. That was a fun deck to go through. You know, I just wanted to speak a little bit before we go here to a couple of archetypes which people have been playing on the ladder, which may have been retired by now. You want to play the gas or ass game? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let's play the gas or ass game. Okay, let's start with a deck which Arena deck lists Jerry T and uh, Brian G declared fairly recently, I don't remember which podcast it was, Golgari Adventure... Yep. was the best deck in the format. Where is it now? Where are we now with Golgari Adventure, Gazaras? So this was, I, this was one of those takes because I, I really enjoy the Arena Deckless podcast. Let's, let's give a proper shout out. A lot of good content over there. And this was, this was and an known for being very correct most of the time, like on the money. And this was one that... It was a very brief period of time where the Golgari mid-range with adventure deck had good card advantage and the right removal to battle what was a very fair meta, you know, a very fair format. When everything was new, we all got out like some new cards and some brews and some deck lists from a few months ago, and we played some fair magic. And it got outclassed very quickly. By the time I had listened to that podcast... I think it was like Saturday because I was too busy on Friday with a bunch of stuff going on. And I think it was like Saturday afternoon. I listened to that podcast. It had come out on a Friday. And then I, I went in and I tried to make a video on Sunday with a Golgari mid-range list. And I was just getting obliterated by Yorian and just getting obliterated by people with more great henges than me or with ECDs for my great henge. And like, I, I, I recognized immediately that my deck was too fair. So that deck, that, that, that was like one day of gas that, that went straight back into the ass. Okay. <laughs> I mean, cause here's the thing, apart from like 
some brief periods in the past when Golgari midrange slash adventure was actually kind of contending, but apart from a few moments, it really just hadn't been very playable. So I think that a lot of people were kind of excited to have it have its fun in the sun again, but we've lost various powerhouses such as Rotting Regisaur as a good example. So that's something that interests me. The other deck that kind of popped up recently that I wanted to get your take on gas or ass was mono green food. And I know that you had actually, in the standard 2021 format, you'd been messing around with some Feasting Troll King lists. And so I just wanted to get your take on what you think about the return of fa- you know, fan favorites such as Wicked Wolf and throwing together this mono green version of the deck. It's the same story. It, it, was, it was the new format uh, honeymoon phase where if other people are being fair, you can do big, powerful thing that is slightly unfair and dominate. And the mono green food deck, when rogues was like this all in aggro deck with a mill component, it flipped over a troll king, right? And then the opponent got it for free because they had a gilded goose that made a few foods. Or the other deck of the moment, Rakdos Midrange, played a Croxa and you discarded the Troll King and then brought it back, right? That was, uh, that, that stuff was messed up and it was very powerful, right? ECD changes that equation. Yorian just completely overran it. And the, that deck turned into ass, but the, the deck that came out of it is somebody took the good engine of that deck and added Yorian to it they freaking cgb the deck dude they cgb the deck they sky noodled it you take know? take a deck <laughs> just add the freaking busted azorius card to it and call it a deck <laughs> yep and the green white that green white deck probably only one only two people are playing it and they're in the rivals league so we'll see if it still holds up it's probably outclassed now by the version that has blue and counter spells because that usually wins the heads up battle but that deck just it took that whole food engine and added the blink engine and just went and blew that original troll king build out of the water (laughs) i mean not to mention not to mention rogues evolved rogues was like an aggro deck like we talked about at the beginning of the show and now it's a very bizarre sort of mid-range slash control deck, it's not just going to roll over and die because you got one free card out of your graveyard anymore. It's It's got its own card draw engines. It has ways to deal with just about anything. Nowadays, it might even lull mages domination that troll king in the late game and steal it and slap you with it. You know what I mean? Could Could easily be. I mean, I'll tell you what. I do kind of love the idea of blinking a Gilded Goose in a Trail of Crumbs with my Yorian. So that's that's a 10 out of 10 salacious sounding scenario to me. Oh, so. have you ever done it with a Wicked Wolf and a Great Henge on the battlefield? Oh, you get extra fights, extra card draw. You're speaking my language now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that yeah, sounds Henge pretty good. Henge is so insane. It is so insane in that deck. And so greedy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, you're you're always paying at least five or six for the henge because you don't have big creatures. But when you do when you do when extra you do. it's it's like it's like you KO'd your opponent and on the way down to the mat, you freaking KO'd them again, you know? <laughs> it's the definition of gas. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Final just card I wanted to ask you about. Korvald, Fae Cursed King. 
Do you think it's going to have a home in this format moving forward? It needs more tools. I, I tried it. The mana was clunky. The deck was clunky. And the sacrifice engines around it, there aren't good free ones. And Witch's Oven, it, it just ain't it anymore. Like, that card needed the cat. On its own, it has a little bit of utility, but it's like if you draw two of them, it's like you double mulliganed in a lot of games. And Corvold needs free or very cheap and effective impactful sacrifice triggers you don't want to just play it and throw away a permanent that you took the time to put on the battlefield or pay mana for you don't want to just throw something away to get a card like the doom foretold does that better and cheaper yorian is a better payoff They're like yeah corvold he needs help the dragon king needs some some good some good some good surroundings I gotta say, it's a sad day for Corvold, and it's an even sadder day for Claim the Firstborn. I mean, is there, was there ever a card that dropped in play from a format faster <laughs> than Claim the Firstborn? I mean, that card is like legendarily unplayed right now. I would say Luca Coppercoat Outcast when Agent of Treachery <laughs> disappeared, but I mean, Could it's kind of back. So yeah, Woe Strider is still around, Village Rights are still around, but it lost Priest of Forgotten Gods, which is the big one, let, yeah, to be clear. That card true. was messed up, and Witches Oven isn't very playable anymore. And Claim now just doesn't do what it used to do. I mean, and, and here's the other thing, too, is that we don't have Oros running around, and we don't have Nissas running around, and that card was very good against both of, of those. So uh, also Tracy's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, lost lost some of its best targets, so that's kind of a thing as well. Claim the first burning your opponent's brushfire elementals, not exactly a game-winning play, so... At any rate, that's kind of my thoughts on the meta. Any, any final pearls of wisdom before we wrap this one up and call it a show? Good Ugin decks are a good foil to Yorian until they play the counter spells, and when they play the counter spells, that's what makes Embercleave better. So it's the it's the prevalence of the blue-white Yorian list that keep Ugin from being the end-all be-all. But as soon as if the counter spells go away, the Ugins will play. That's a that's a good point. We didn't actually talk about any of these Tima ramp lists. Last time it came up, you discussed the remotest of possibilities that we may not have a good Tima deck in the format. But um Lo and behold, there are still Tima decks in the format. So it's kind of interesting to me. People are still playing Genesis Ultimatum. What do you make of this? I, I would call this deck the leftovers. <laughs> yeah, the leavings. <laughs> it, looks like, it looks like the adventure deck. What's left of the adventure deck got smashed into what's left of the ramp Omnath deck. And... This, this is the leftovers. Um, I mean, it's going to overpower a deck that can't counter it or interact with it. If the, like the green white Yorian decks would get absolutely dunked on by this deck, you know? Um, but rogues is probably just like, thank you. This is going to be fun to be honest. Yep. Yep. I'll take that snake. I will counter that ultimatum and the rest of your deck is garbage. Yeah. I've, I've played around a little bit with this on the ladder because Okay, who was I kidding? I was always kind of an unabashed team of ramp mage at heart, Omnath notwithstanding. 
But yeah, I've not been super impressed by this deck. This deck can whiff so hard. I've had multiple games where I die with nothing on the battlefield, six lands on the battlefield, and two copies of Ultimatum in my hand, and it feels real bad. So yeah, this is a really swingy deck where like when you get the Ultimatum into the um, Terror of the Peaks plus your giant and whatever, and you, you do the one turn KO, you feel like a god. And then in the very next turn, you just go out with a whimper and it's sad. So very swingy deck, not a deck that I would be probably sleeving up if I were trying to win a tournament myself. Yeah, I, I second that. I think it will continue to linger because it's powerful, but I think it's really polarized in its good matchups and its bad matchups. So it's a meta call deck. Yeah. Yeah, but definitely a deck that could rear its head on any given weekend. And keep an eye out, because these still are some of the most powerful cards in the format. So, yeah, very interesting. All right, my friend. Well, let's put a cherry on it there. Exciting to see all these developments in the standard meta game, and awesome to see so many different builds of so many different decks. And hopefully it'll stay that way. Hopefully we'll have more to work with, and it won't get solidified too quickly, because... We all know how boring that gets. So looking forward to checking on the results of this next week. You can find ArenaCraft podcast on all of the places you might want to listen to podcasts. Can content. I find it on Spotify? Spotify. Can I, find, can I find it on Stitcher? Stitcher. Can I find it on Google? Google, indeed. Can I find it on the Apple? Uh, yeah, yeah. How about the YouTubes? Can I find you, it there? You are on YouTube, indeed. So all the places, basically. All the places. If there's any place we are not, let us know, because I would very much like to know that. Um, now you can find CGB on comparatively less places, but they're all the places you want to be anyway. He's on YouTube. It's a really great place to watch his content. The one in the best of one, releasing a video every single day probably playing all of the decks that we talked about on this podcast here at various times in the format. So go check out what he's got to say about all of that stuff. You can also find Covert Go Blue on twitch.tv forward slash Covert Go Blue. And he streams Monday through Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern time. That's another great place to, he talks a lot. Believe it or not, CGB actually talks a lot as well as plays magic. And another great place to go to discuss all the things you might want to know about any of the stuff that we discussed today. So, yep. All right, buddy. I'm looking forward to next week. Catch you then. Later.